This is E Boogie, the artist formerly known as Eric. You're now listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What is up, guys? We are here with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm AC, and guess what? I've decided once again to kick off my fellow co-hosts and have an all-Knicks episode. And for that episode, I'm bringing back my man Drew. What's going on, guys? Back at it again. And Rahul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knicks tape. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting a go New York, go New York chant. Come on, guys. That's at the end, man. That's at the end. <laughs> Defense chant at the end, bro. Don't worry about it. It's coming. Yo, so our last pod actually was our single most listened to podcast we've ever done. So I guess there's a lot of Knicks fans out there who just want to hear some positive things about their yeah, team. Hey, you're welcome, you know? <laughs> yeah. And listen, guys, now we're recording this episode right before the Lakers game. So it's entirely possible that we could lose to a LeBronless Lakers, but I'm not going to let that get me down. Because the Knicks just came off their most impressive win of the season against the LA Clippers. And the last time I had you guys on, which is a couple months ago, we were kind of discussing that, you know, we'd be happy if the Knicks made the play-in game, maybe got out of the play-in game. And frankly, in March, we lost a couple of close games. I know y'all remember that bad string of officiating we had where we lost all these tight games. It seemed like every game we lost near the buzzard, Randall was getting angry. And it seemed like, all right, we're headed for the play-in game. And then all of a sudden, basically since the start of April, we've gone 15-6. and And now we're not only qualified for the playoffs for the first time in what seems like forever, but we sit in fourth place in the East, guys. Completely unbelievable. I'm still shocked that this is reality, to be honest with you. I remember when we did the last pod, my, my viewpoint was, you know what? We might not win every game, but, you know, we compete, we play defense, and, you know, games are close. It's not like we're getting blown out like years past. But now I'm sitting here today, May 11th, a month and a half probably, or two months after we've done that pod. And I, every game I go into it, I just believe we're going to win. Like, I, I have no doubt in my mind that we should win this game. And it's just, in a matter of, like, weeks, it's like a crazy feeling to be a Knicks fan right now. And I'm, I'm, so, I'm so happy for you guys out there listening that you get to experience this with us. Because, man, if we were at the Garden, it would be popping off right now. Yo, speaking of going to the Garden, I actually got a chance to hit up one of the Knicks games against the Kings. And, you know, we've had, like, some games where we've struggled, you know, against some top teams. But then we've also had these wire-to-wire, really classic shutdown, both ends of the floor kind of games. And that Kings game was one of them where we just jumped out. We kept them at bay the whole game, and we won in the 20s. And... You know, I can think of a couple other examples of this. And the one win that really kind of like turned my opinion around on this team was that Bucks win. I don't know if you guys remember. It was in like the middle of the season. Hell yes. First making our, our run. And, you know, you looking at the score and they hit a couple threes. We're up like 15. I'm like, all right, Bucks coming back. It's fine. It's going to happen. Third quarter, no. Fourth quarter, no. We're pushing the lead out. And I'm like, what's going on? Is there an injury? Like, I look, I'm checking the box. <laughs> everybody's in and we're still kind of crushing it and you know it's just it's just really impressive to watch competent basketball happen so fast for this team and I think again we had praised Tibbs before and we got to do it again and you know he's really brought a sense of composure and plan and really laid the foundation down very well and you know I was talking to Drew about this before we started recording But in a season where it feels like so few teams are playing consistent defense, and there's a number of reasons for that, right? I mean, it could be due to the pandemic, due to the shortened season, due to the amount of injuries there are, due to the lack of practice time. It's just so refreshing to actually root for a team that kind of embraces that old school 90s Knicks defense first identity. We compete every night, we play hard, and it's just been honestly a pleasure to watch. And dude, what's even better about, you know, the win streak and the long runs, you talk about the defense, where it really comes out is like in the final, like six minutes of the fourth quarter, even games like one of the signature games that sticks out to me is that Pelicans game where we were down, I think six or seven with about four minutes to go. 
And, you know, that was the the game where Rose passed it out to Bullock for the three to tie the game. But during the winning streak, that was like a consistent tight games down the stretch, maybe down two, three possessions. But just coming back and, and hitting clutch buckets, R.J. Barrett, obviously Randall has shown that he's clutch. And, you know, I, I, what can you say about D. Rose down the stretch? Playing starters minutes, I know he's not starting the game, but he's playing in the most important crunch time minutes, and he's delivering. It's unbelievable to watch. Yeah, I'm just going to jump in right there. The, those D. Rose minutes are beautiful to watch. And I think, you know, that that little stretch where we had where we did struggle to kind of close out games, I think, you know, that was a very big growing experience for the team. You know, a new team learning how to win gets hit with an adjustment. They start losing a couple of games. It's really easy to get down on yourself. But credit to the Knicks for kind of keeping their focus, keeping believing, making adjustments down the stretch. The addition of Rose to the crunch time minutes has really added another layer to our offensive attack where, you know, with Randall and RJ the way it is, I still didn't think we had enough shot creation to get points in the playoffs. And Derek Rose seems to know just when to like get his mojo going, when to step back, when to be aggressive, when to let the other guys kind of grow in their role. And he's so humble and he's such a consummate team player right now. It's it, it's it's magical to watch the way that these guys are playing together. I mean, Derek Rose was, let's be honest, left for dead in the NBA, right? But this is a guy who was the youngest MVP in NBA history. And he was well on pace to become the first MVP ever to not make the Hall of Fame because that's how low his career fell after that incredible high peak that it started at. And, you know, when he came onto this team, I didn't expect anything at all, but he's brought a level of professionalism. He's brought a level of competence. He's easily the best distributor we have off the drive, which I think is something very important to a team that needs ways to generate offense. And he just competes hard and he's fine coming off the bench. He's fine whether he closes games or doesn't close games. He's clearly our best option down the stretch at the one now, which I wouldn't have said, you know, even a couple of months ago. And I, I feel like he has a chance with a deep postseason run or maybe a couple to actually get himself back in that Hall of Fame discussion. Yeah, those are things I don't think we would have been talking about even as recently as earlier this year. You know, him resurrecting his career has been really an impressive subplot to this next season. You know, the way Rose plays down the stretch, it's it's almost worth watching Peyton for the first 24 minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if anything's worth that much, but but uh, I, I hear you. With that. Yeah, Drew is absolutely right that I, and I, I feel like Peyton, his minutes are a bit grating to me still to this day. He does compete on that end, and I guess he sets a tone on the defensive end, but I think he just takes too much away from the table offensively, and especially when it comes to the playoffs, he will. But I'm not going to let that ruin my overall appreciation for the team. But before we get to some of the individual standout players besides Derek Rose, I do have a question for both of you guys since you both live in New York. Now, I'm a lifelong Knicks fan who has lived in New York in the past, but I don't live there now. In the last few months, have the four Nets fans that you guys know in New York City joined the Knicks bandwagon yet? You know, for me, I don't know many Nets fans. If I do, I am automatically delete their number. So that's probably part <laughs> of the reason there. But it's, it ha- I mean, I think we spoke about this even in the last pod. It's, it's really like crazy how the town gets invested into the Knicks. And, you know, aside from needing to hear about the Nets because they have Kyrie Irving and, and Kevin Durant and James Harden, who are headliners. I mean, you wouldn't know that this team is probably... If healthy, the odds on favor to win the title. Like they're not, at least from my experience in in the city, there's they're just not the talk of the town like the Knicks are. And I mean, like I'm hearing it now, and I and I agree with it on on some of these talking heads. They're saying, you know, if the Knicks make it to the playoffs and and win a series, and the Nets don't win the ship, it's almost a huge disappointment for the Nets, whereas it's a a major victory for the Knicks. And I don't think I could ag- agree more with that. Yeah, I think even with the Nets handling business without, you know, their stars playing together, playing a lot of games, you know, securing a top two record potentially in the East, it looks like they're, they'll are they probably hold on to that second seat over the Bucks, especially with that last loss. Even despite all that, nobody's talking about the Nets. Nobody cares. Everybody around here, hype for the Knicks. You see these videos outside Madison Square Garden, people hype, cheering, celebrating like they've won big games. But it's just the hype behind New York. And, you know, New York appreciates good basketball. It doesn't have to be 
the prettiest brand. It just has to be hard fought, has to be done the right way. It has to have an emphasis on defense and grittiness. And this team embodies all of that and embodies New York, especially after, you know, the way this pandemic has kind of gone. I think this next season has really been a light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of these New Yorkers. Yeah, you know, Mike Francesco was on a, a pod recently that I heard him. And for those who don't know, he's a, he's a pretty well-known radio guy. He does talk show radio for various sports teams in the New York area. And he was mentioning that in the 90s, most of their coverage was actually dedicated toward the Knicks, which if you lived in the New York area for the last 20 years, you might not realize that because they haven't been good. And the focus has been mostly on the Yankees and other teams like that. But when the Knicks are good, it matters to that city. This is a basketball city. It's a basketball hotbed. It's a place where many legends came from, right? So it matters when the team that represents that city that plays literally in the center of the city does well. And that's what's happening now, which is awesome. Which brings me to my next question as well. Raul, you mentioned that you went to the Garden. What's kind of the experience like now? I mean, we've all been there when it's packed and going crazy, but with limited fans, do you still get that vibe? I mean, on on the TV audio, it sounds like you can hear the Garden fans chanting as much as possible. What is it actually like being there? So you don't feel like it's 20% capacity when you're there, 10% capacity when you're there. Everybody's there. Everyone's vocal. It's a much more intimate experience. You're yelling. Everyone can hear you. The players can hear you. People still getting after it. And you know, with the Knicks playing this good brand of basketball, everyone's cheering. Everyone's going crazy, man. I think, you know, the pandemic allowing maybe a little bit more of casual fan to kind of try to get a a test and come to the game. I've seen a couple of, you know, people around my area that were a lot younger than, I guess, the typical crowd. I just thought the environment was was absolutely incredible for the amount of people there. And I just can't wait till they up the capacity for these playoff games. You know, Garden's going to be rocking. And I, I can't wait to go there. I can't wait to go back. And Raul, is there any news on that front with respect to the possibility that that number will be increased by playoff time? So yes, the answer is it will go up. I don't remember the exact number, but I... I was under the impression that we were going to be doubling it in indoor arenas as of May 19th. I mean, that's a, a huge difference. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's, I mean, if the garden is this loud with whatever capacity they have now, 10%, you know, you d- more than double that. It's going to be rocking with the way this team is playing. Yeah, agreed. I mean, like I said, it didn't feel like 10%, and I'm sure it won't feel like 25%. I think the Knicks, you know, when they're playing well, have a real home court advantage. And, you know, we're playing well, we're playing the right way. And I can't wait for the Hawks, the the Heat, the Celtics, whomever gets that fourth or fifth seed to come and, come and play us in that first round. So if we're talking about the Knicks and their resurgence, we have to start with Julius Randle. And when we talked about him at the end of February, it was clear at that time that Randle was having an all-star caliber season. But in the last few months, his game has gone to a totally different level. In April, this man put our team on his back, averaging 27, 9, and 6. And it's come to the point now that I don't even think that saying he's an all-star caliber player is enough. He absolutely deserves one of the six all-NBA forward spots, which is an incredible achievement considering that forward is the most loaded position in the NBA. What do you guys think? I mean, I'm I'm right there with you. I, I think he's more than deserving of it. I mean, the way it stacks up, I mean, the people ahead of it are Kawhi, Giannis. And then after that, you know, do we put in Durant? Do we put in LeBron? You know, these guys have missed Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler, you know, even Paul George. Yeah. All these guys have missed some time, whereas Randall has missed, I think, one game for precautionary reasons. He's been doing it consistently. I mean, like you said, to put the team on his back, one player of the month last month, I'm pretty sure. It's really, I, I don't know if there's enough good words to say about Randall. Most improved, he's definitely in the MVP conversation for me, at least. I know there's a ton of people that keep saying there's too many people in the conversation, but I think he's a top five MVP candidate When with the way I think about MVP, which is if you take that person off your team, what, what happens to your squad? And I, I honestly think, you know, we're we're back probably under 30 wins, if not under 25 wins without uh, Randall. No, no question with the way that he's been carrying us. And one of the ways that, in my opinion, he's truly improved as a player is as a closer. 
this guy gets off his step back jumper whenever he wants to. And that includes being pretty far from the hoop as well, because he's still hitting 41.3% from three on largely difficult and contested shots. And I think that he has a huge advantage over other big men as a closer, because in the modern NBA, it's very difficult to be dominant down the stretch of games if you have to be fed the ball in the post, because teams can zone up against you. They can deny the ball in different ways. They can shade against you. They can actually flat out double you before the catch, something they couldn't do pre the rule change. He kind of can dribble into his own post-ups whenever he wants to, kind of like LeBron does. And he also has that fadeaway game where he can kind of face you up and then kind of go to that step back. So it gives him a lot of options in one-on-one ISO situations, which is what NBA fourth quarters and playoff situations often actually break down to. Yeah, having a variety of moves is definitely important, especially when the defenses start clamping down and spacing becomes tighter and the effort level kind of goes up uniformly across the league in the playoffs. But he has at least two of these moves that are, in my opinion, unguardable and go-to, right? So you mentioned the step-back jumper. That jumper on the baseline fading out of bounds, what can you do about it? There's no way you can block it. There's no way you can get a hand up in time for him to kind of get affected in terms of his shot. And he can have that whenever he wants. Then you couple that with his dribble drive. He's able to push it through because he's strong. He has the finesse to kind of finish up and around you. And then if it's really not going to happen, he has a wherewithal to kick it out to the open guy in the corners. He's playing at an incredibly highly efficient level and he's making the right choice all of but a few of the times when I see him drive. Like this guy from last year to this year has somehow worked on his decision making and it's happening quicker and quicker it seems and our defensive rotations aren't able to keep up in the way that they used to be with the with the Knicks offense. He's also pretty good off the ball. So I got some advanced stats for you guys from B-Ball Index. He generates more per possession points while popping after pick and roll than 98% of players in the league. He's also the 99th percentile of all players in per possession screen assists. So he knows how to set a mean screen off the ball as well. So he's not a kind of guy who sort of like a James Harden type who needs the ball in his hands and otherwise he does nothing at all. Randall is fine setting picks. He's fine having the ball in his hands. He's fine dribbling the ball up. He's fine setting screens. Some or the other, he's going to hurt your defense. So it made me wonder, guys, what exactly is Julius Randle in his current state's historical NBA comparison? Because he has this sort of hodgepodge of skills, and it's hard to sort of fit him into any box of a traditional power forward, at least not one that comes to mind immediately. I I have some ideas, but I'm curious what you guys think. Well, I don't know if this is, uh, if there's, like you said, a direct comparison that, that gives us the perfect answer. But I think he's a mix of guys, you know. He has some of the the big bone, but also like a bowling ball, wrecking ball kind of style like Barkley does. Like he's able to get to the basket. He's a ferocious rebounder. Right. He's also got a lot of passing ability. And, you know, his post game and his passing kind of reminds me of like a Jermaine O'Neal type. So like a little bit of a mix of, of Barkley O'Neal in terms of he's a fusion. He's able to dribble. He's able to drive. He's also got the post up game. He's also able to kind of pass the ball really well. He's nowhere near, obviously, as good as Barkley was in his prime. And that's not what I'm trying to say. It's just, you know, if you're trying to model model a game, I think that's kind of a, a pretty decent comparison, in my opinion. Yeah, no, like you said, he's he's not. it's not easy to compare him to just one player. And I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm not sure if I got a, a great comp, but part of his shot making and his his vision and his back to the basket post up mostly remind me a little a little bit of of Rashid Wallace I would say you know he's got the deep shot he's got the post moves what I'm struggling to figure out is what is his face up game like because he uses his quickness so well to get to his left hand and and go around guys that are much slower than him at the four but then like you said he has that nice step back if if he he's unable to to get by him and I'm wondering what do you guys think of that face up game yeah, I was thinking potentially of Chris Webber, one of my all-time favorite players. Now, C-Webb was a totally different caliber of an athlete, as athletic as Randall is. C-Webb was just an absolute freak of nature when he was young before his injuries, and probably still a marginally better passer too. But Randall's like ability to create from the nail, both as a 
guy who could set a pick, but also you could just give him the ball that he can just generate offense as a passer. It really does remind me of Seaweb. And like Seaweb, he's got good hands, which help him rebound and catch the ball in traffic. And like Seaweb, he can either post up or he can face up. He can drive by slower defenders. He can post up smaller defenders. He can also now unleash his deadly step back jumper, which Seaweb never had in his game. And I think that the fact that he has, we talked a little bit before about his ability to score on the clutch, that's a huge differentiator between him and C-Web, who often panicked the end of games, even long after his famous timeout at, at U-Mitch. He's the kind of guy who would almost play hot potato with the ball. That's the opposite of Randall in a very good way. So I think that Randall has a lot of C-Web in him, but in some ways he's even an improvement upon C-Web, which is crazy to think. I don't know if that's blasphemy or not. I'm trying to process that in my head. Um, <laughs> you got to understand, Russell. I yeah. love C-Web. He's one of my, he's, and he's one of my five favorite basketball players of all time. So I don't make that comparison lightly. But I still don't think he's quite C-Web. I'm just saying, if I had to pick someone. The Kings, the Kings memories and slander post not winning against the Lakers on that rig series is kind of rough to hear my perspective. But what I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say is something just equally as blasphemy. So, so actually, when you when you were talking about his face-up game, and you know, I'm trying to like, think, and obviously the games I watched the most have been the Knicks games over the course of the years. But tell me his face-up game, his fadeaway game, and then his ability to kind of drive on you with either hand doesn't remind you of like a a slower twitched and more deliberate mellow. You know, mellow had like that quick triple, like he had the triple move, he had the quick jab, and then he would just pull up. Everything was faster twitch than Randall, so I'm not I'm not saying the same caliber of athlete, especially when Melo was in his prime. But Randall's kind of got a little bit of the same kind of face-up game. You know, he's got that jump shot. He can take you into the post. Like I said, he's more deliberate. He's not as fast twitchy. But I think, I think face-up-wise, that's not a crazy, crazy comparison. And I think they both are, are decent three-point shooters. And Randall, over this year, has been on an even higher level. I mean... <laughs> this is gonna be true blasphemy for all the mellow fans out there but <laughs> i mean are we sure that randall isn't a better three-point shooter than mellow at least <laughs> at least by Uh-oh. statistically speaking it's hard yeah, to i'm just saying i'm just saying listen man i i, I appreciate mellow and i know drew over here is a, a mellow stan uh, <laughs> which I I find amusing problem. since he since he uh, ran our team into the ground for a couple <laughs> years there. <laughs> yeah, but I I do see your comparison you're making Rahul in his overall ability to generate offense from a variety of angles. That's something that Melo always had, and even to this day in Portland as kind of a role player, he still has that ability. So it's it's a pretty good comp from that perspective. But I do want to move on to the other sort of emerging star for this team. And no, I don't mean quickly, <laughs> although I do love quickly. Uh, RJ Barrett, we talked about him in February. We all agreed that we saw improvement from him on the defensive end and as an overall player, but he was going to be defined by his ability to hit jump shots consistently and also to improve as a finisher. And we, we theorized maybe why he wasn't finishing as, as well as we thought that he should. And part of it was having an extremely packed paint. Well, since then, both of those things have changed dramatically. Speaking about his three-point shot alone, he shot 45% from three over his last 56 games after a pretty rough start to the season. And he's hitting clutch shots. It, you know, it's really come to that point where when the ball is swung to him in a critical late game position, I expect him to actually make the three, which is a far cry for where I was with him even a few months ago. Bro, that catch and shoot three is wet right now. This guy working with Drew Hanlon over the course of the summer really worked on on this one thing and you you know the way the way the process kind of works out for them it's add a new skill every year add a new skill every year and whatever skill you add that's all we're doing this summer and this past summer for RJ was catch and shoot threes catch and shoot threes not creating not off the dribble nothing like that just catch and shoot repetitive motion and you look at this season in a little bit of a different lens and that 40% is even higher his first 7 games or so he shot a putrid under 20% from three. And now you're looking at a guy that's finishing the year, hopefully over 40%. Just think of what that percentage might've been like over the last, you know, 50 or so games. It's, it's remarkable. You know, this guy was thought to be someone that needs to play with the spacing. And now he has become the spacing. 
interestingly, he actually still doesn't have that much gravity. So defenses don't really respect his shot yet. And maybe they will eventually. In fact, some of the advanced stats show that his three-point gravity is better than that of only 11% of the players in the league, which means that he's being left wide open, which is also shown in the fact that he gets better looks at three-pointers than 87% of players in the league. So maybe his numbers are a bit inflated as a three-point shooter because he's wide open, but you can't deny the improvement just in his mechanics alone and the way that he's getting the shots up. Uh, so, you know, obviously we'll see now when defenses start closing out to him more, what that'll do to him. But again, if they start doing that, he's going to have more opportunities to drive, which is really what fundamentally he is as a player. Guy, He's a slasher, really, in my opinion. A that, slasher and, and a passer. That's the whole point, though. They're not jumping out on him, but he's making them pay eventually they're going to have to jump out at him. And then it really starts to go off, right? Like he's going to have driving lanes. He's opening the floor right now for nobody because everyone's packing the paint. He's heading the three. But as soon as they start running out, now Randall's got easier lane. Now Rosa's an easier lane. Now Quickly has an easier lane. So, you know, you can't teach stupid, I guess, in the NBA until these guys figure out that RJ can now hit a jump shot. It might take a little bit. That's right. but, But the adjustment will come quickly i'm sure as soon as we start this first round series god forbid we play the heat or something they're not going to be people that mess around on the scouting reports they're going to see what rj's shooting in the corners they're not going to leave him open like this so i'd love to see what he does when that starts getting taken away i'd love to see him attack the paint and i'd love to see the other guys taking advantage of people now gravitating towards rj that hasn't happened yet, but that's the next step. And that's what I can't wait to see. Well, what I'm particularly enthused about is that he has become a really good finisher. So he gets to the rim better than 93% of players in the NBA. He draws fouls on drives better than 82% of players. And he finishes at the rim better than 76% of the players in this league. And why is that impressive? Well, the paint is nearly always clogged against RJ Barrett. He has harder shots at the rim than 94% of NBA players. So basically, he's always going up against some level of a shot blocker there. And he's still finishing, which is really encouraging. Because if you remember, this is a guy that people worried about his ability to finish. Did he have enough athleticism to finish at the pro level? Well, he's proving that he absolutely does. So when defenses do start closing out harder to his three-point shot, his drive games will get even more effective. AC, after all that... At that you said, and all those advanced statistics, I'm going to throw out a phrase that that Knicks fans love to say. He's only 20 years old. (laughs) Right, absolutely, absolutely. 20 years old, the improvement from last year to this year. And it's crazy that everything we talked about in the last pod, he needs to get a better jump shot so he can open up driving lanes for him. He needs to get better and stronger at finishing at the rim. You got to check, you know, your listeners, because he had to be one of them on the last pod because he has done exactly what we have meant <laughs> in the last part. And, that, and, you know, when you think about it, the Knicks as a whole, I think part of what contributes to, to his ability to get those open looks is the Knicks as a whole are, I believe, the fourth best three-point shooting team by percentage in the entire league. And so when, when Randall's in the post and he's making those kicks to the opposite corner or to the wing, the three people surrounding him are... Quickly, Bullock and Barrett, all shooting 40% from the three. So it's almost like pick your poison. But to his credit, you know, he's he's knocking them down, right? He it's yeah, they're maybe that he's getting better looks, but even when he was getting better looks at the, to start the season, I mean 18.5% for a guard is, is almost like a joke, right? But to put put up his numbers now and know that he's he's shooting 45% over the last 50 or so games, and he's brought his average up for the season. To over 40%. I mean, it's it's a remarkable turnaround. And it's really like goes to show you that the guy just doesn't have... He almost reminds you of Eli, right? Eli from the Giants, for those wondering. He's like unflappable. Like whatever happened the last game, whatever happened the first half, you know, he shoots 0 for 9, has like two points. And he comes back and he, and he puts in, uh, you know, 20 points in the second half. He's just unflappable that way. And it's, again, he's 20 years old. It's I, I wouldn't trade the guy for anything right now. I think he's going to be a star. I'm I'm so excited for his future. You know, the Eli comparison is actually a really interesting one because kind of like Eli, RJ was very highly touted coming out of college, right? I mean, this is a guy who actually, he was ranked higher than even Zion coming out of high school. And maybe when he actually came to the pros, 
it was a lot of, well, what can't he do as opposed to what he can do? And he's kind of just consistently improving and he's showing that, hey, at 20 years old, he may project still to be a superstar in this in the NBA one day if he keeps improving in these various areas. Let's not forget he has other real strengths. He's a great passer. And I've seen a dramatic improvement in this guy on the defensive end. This guy guards people at all kinds of positions. In fact, he's in the 87th percentile of all players in his ability to guard various positions and frequency of guarding other players at shooting guards, point guards, small forwards, etc. He's also really good at contesting three-pointers, contesting better than 97% of players in the league. And one really kind of odd thing, considering that he's not all that tall, nor is he an extremely springy athlete, he's actually really good at defending the rim, defending it better than 84% of players in this league. So he's found ways to contribute on that end, plus his offensive improvement makes me think that, hey man, we might have a, a really young stud here on our hands, which totally changes our franchise trajectory going forward. When we first did this next pod, while we might not have seen the the spacing and the shooting coming, we did see some of these other intangibles. And I, I just want to say that's something that stood out even from the beginning. Yeah, everyone wanted to point out he's not Ja, he's not Zion. Look at these guys doing all these things on the offensive end. But really, basketball is a two-sided game. This guy is consistently always making the right reads, the right plays. He's playing lockdown defense. He's trying. He's got full effort. He's going for rebounds. He's in the right place. He's a consummate leader, even at the age of 20, the way he handles himself in press conferences, with media, supporting his teammates, just trying to improve his game the right way. You know, all of these other intangibles, all of the other things were already there. And that that gave him the floor to be a steady competitor and a steady contributor for years to come. And now that he's improving some of the range, some of the shooting, some of the rest of it, the ceiling is slowly starting to to uptick as well. And and we really do have a, a franchise player in our hands. And while I might not agree with Drew in terms of him being untouchable for anybody in the league, I do think that his trade value and the way people are seeing him around the league is drastically changing from last year to this year. Drew, do you really believe that? You think you would not trade him for any player in the league right now? The way I view RJ Barrett is, again, I'm going to say it again. He's 20 years old. And what would we have to give up? Like, if he's improved this much in year two, and he's got the defense, the two-way talent that we're talking about, there's not many players that I can say I would even consider trading him for. I mean, maybe, maybe a Devin Booker, but... Would you like do you, the chemistry on the team also makes me feel like he's untouchable? Like you guys are saying, guys love love him at twenty years old. He's a kid, but he's one of the leaders on the team, and that alone I think accounts for some of these out of body experiences that these players are playing with. Is because they enjoy playing with each other. They're having fun playing for each other, and I, I think there's something to be said about team chemistry and and what it means to winning basketball. Maybe I'm being a little overzealous with saying nobody, but yeah, at this moment, I, I just feel like he's going to be a star in, and he's already got the makings of an all-NBA player if he keeps this trajectory. My take on that is I feel like if someone like Luca or Giannis or some somebody really great like that, still relatively young, wanted to come to the Knicks, I doubt that RJ Barrett would be the reason let's say it had to be by a trade that RJ Barrett would stop the Knicks from acquiring such a player. But that may change in a year or two if he continues his upward trajectory. So I don't want to say you're totally off base either. I think I could rattle off 15 off the top of my head right now that I would have no idea. <laughs> I was being kinder. <laughs> yeah. But with that being said, you know, like, like you said, everything is changing. And honestly, him on a rookie contract for a couple more years has a lot more value to this franchise than, than a lot it's of a max people, lot. Yeah. Than a lot of I people totally agree. Might, might think, you know, like before, if you had asked me a question about what I put him in a BL trade with a gajillion picks, I'd be like, yeah, he's good. He's not going to be no like high ceiling top two player on a, on a winning team kind of player. But now I'm sitting there thinking you rather have Beal with a max contract and no picks or would you rather have rj cap space and your picks and kind of build the team from there so really team building value you take everything into account plus the guy's a dog he's new yorker like through and through i know he's from canada but that that shit don't matter he's gully as hell he's (laughs) He's new york for life now new york man he he don't smile he don't he don't do nothing but scowl at people 
all these people trying to come at him post-game. He's like, ooh, that fuck. You know, Anthony Edwards tried to clap at him. All these guys trying to say things, but he doesn't give a shit. He's just in there grinding, working hard, representing New York. He really reminds me of one of those 90s Knicks, like an Anthony Mason or, or Charles Logan. Not like a, a, a tough guy like them, but just his demeanor. Like the, the way that he plays so hard, it really does bring to mind that those old teams that I fell in love with that made me a Knicks fan in the first place. And another guy like that, who I think has a, had a huge part of changing our season, is Nerlens Noel. When Mitchell Robinson went down, it seemed at least initially that we were in trouble, right? I mean, we had this nice center rotation between the two of them. But Nerlens Noel starting has kind of made us an even better defensive team than we were before. And the stats really back this up. This guy has legitimately been a defensive anchor. He's actually the single best player in the entire NBA at the percentage of shots that he contests at the rim. He's also the best in the NBA at per possession blocks and the best in the NBA at adjusted rim points saved per possession. So he's elite shot blocker. But it's not just shot blocking with this guy. He's also active in other ways besides just blocking shots. He's in the 90th percentile in passing lane defense and the 92nd percentile in per possession deflections. And he's also the best player in the whole NBA in terms of his box out rate while also being the 94th percentile in per possession defensive rebounds. So basically blocks, steals, rebounds, Anything involving energy and athleticism, this guy is doing it. And he is absolutely a, a huge part of why our season has gone from, you know, middling around 500 to, wow, we're now the four seed. I mean, he's just another microcosm of what this Knicks team is, right? Like half of the team were people that were just thrown away or discarded. I mean, Julius Randle, first round pick, doesn't even get a second contract from the Lakers because they're trying to clear cap space, ends up on the Pelicans. They don't re-sign him. You look at D. Rose that we talked about earlier, and then we get to Noel, who's a first round pick. You know, he had that injury early on, and he's been looking for a place to showcase his talents. And it's just it's just another another reason we love this team. They're just misfits who've been tossed around and they just want to show that they still have game left in the tank and and he has been unbelievable on the defensive end I mean how many games have we seen in a row where somebody just tries to take it to the rack and throw it down and they are denied repeatedly sometimes twice in a row and then his rotations on on the pick and roll defense his defense for five million a year I mean what a deal we got this guy on and it really makes me question what do we do at the center position we now have him who's who's still a young player and Mitch you know who I love but you know he's been injured the last couple of years and I don't know do we do we keep them both can we afford them both what what do we do with this because together I think they are an amazing tandem but they're going to cost some money every time I watch Nerlens make a big play I say fuck we're not going to be able to keep him, are we? <laughs> accurate, well, yo. Accurate. Steel. We could. We have 50 million of cap space. I- I'm not sure if putting into the center position is the best use of that cap space. So I, I think you're right, Raul, to wonder whether it's really, we want, we're going to actually retain this guy. It's not a long-term solution in terms of cap management. But that being said, this year, we got another free agency class that's relatively weak. You know, there's no big names that we're going to go chase. And I think preserving this this nucleus, this core with high AAV but low year deals makes a lot of sense, right? Big money, short term, keep flexibility, run these guys back another year. They seem to be having fun together. They're playing the right way. They're getting minutes. I think they'll be fine. I think actually, you know, mentioning Mitch in the same conversation as this Noel discussion is a big deal because we once thought Mitch was going to be one of our centerpieces. And I don't know if we can't look at him as a valuable trade piece at this point to kind of upgrade our backcourt, especially now that we've kind of found this diamond in the rough in Nerlens Noel. I mean, what what do you think? Like, if you had to pick between the two, who are you taking at this point? I well, mean, Noel, to be, to be honest, I think our hand is forced, right? I mean, you look around the league, to get a good player, you're going to have to give up a young blue chip talent and picks, right? So Nerlens Noel, for us, as a veteran signee, came at zero opportunity cost, and we can keep him at zero opportunity cost. Mitchell Robinson, his contract is the most tradable contract out of a competent center in probably the whole league. Like this guy is making under $5 million. People over the cap can absorb him. People under the cap want him. He's young. He's talented. He's got an opportunity to grow. 
this guy has some actual trade value. So whether that's flipping him to a contender for a couple of late first round picks, whether it's putting him in a package for a young blue chip talent, you know, maybe you work out a sign and trade with Lonzo if he can't come here just free and you make a centerpiece around something like this. So we really need to upgrade our our talent in the backcourt, I believe, you know, even with Rose and quickly there. And I think Mitch is, you know, sadly expendable at this point. Nerland's really kind of reinvented the need for a, a new center. I don't think I don't think it's quite there the way it was before. My only thing with Mitch's contract is it's almost so low that it's going to be hard for a contract matching perspective to actually use it to get the sort of blue chip player you're talking about, unless we put a lot of other salary in that trade as well. I think it can be used as a trade. I don't think the center position in general is where money should be spent unless you're getting a truly elite center. Because I think guys who do at least have a simile of what Mitch and Nerlens do can be found on the market basically every year. I mean, look at the center buyout market this year. There's just a ton of guys, right? Those are guys who were either bought out and they're the same with free agency. I, I think... There are other positions where I'm just from a, from a general team manager perspective where we might be better off using our money going forward. But man, it's going to hurt to watch one or both of those guys walk out the door if we do let them go. Yeah, just real quick on team management. I think I think you're right to a certain extent, but when you start looking at the top teams in the West and we're well, actually really just the West, but you're going to have to eventually beat LeBron and Davis. Eventually, you're going to have to go through Jokic. There's, there's enough premier center talent where you can't be too little up front. You need to have a guy that can at least at least make their life a little bit more difficult. And I think I think Noel is that, and I'm not saying he's not, but I, I don't think we should discount the value of, of, of a true center, even, even as much as the game has been moving towards a perimeter-oriented approach. 100% agree. What I meant more about is, how you want to allocate the resource to get that center. You know, like there, there's a point at which you're overpaying for a position where you can just get players all the time. It's kind of like in football where there's always seems to be a glut of running backs available at any given time. You need a running back to win in the NFL, but you don't necessarily need to pay a ton of money or waste a hugely high draft pick on it. Now, if you have a center like Jokic or Embiid, then by all means, you should give them a max contract. But those guys will grow on trees. And I'm not really convinced that even the Nerlens or Mitchell types can actually bother those kind of players anyway. That's a fair point. How to forget about Embiid, though. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say that, yo. You heard, before you get to Jokic or LeBron and AD, you got to go through Embiid and even Giannis at, at some point. Yo, I'm looking yeah. back to East, yo. We're, we got finals in our mind right now. I mean, even Bam is legit. You know, he's a legit he's center. He's center, though. He's not, he's not like a big man, big man. Right, but he's a, he's a talented five who can destroy your team. And we saw that last year with Boston, who had no answer for him. Yep. Which actually is a, is a good lead-in to our next topic that I want to discuss with you guys. is So the Knicks right now are in the four seed. They can wind up basically four, five, or six. There's this three-team race between them, the Atlanta Hawks, and the Miami Heat for these three positions. So I, I wanted to ask you guys, first, where do you think they'll end up? And who do you think they will face? And then we can maybe talk about those matchups a little bit. It's hard for me to see them hold on to this four seed. You know, we are playing at Lakers. Granted, we catch a break without LeBron playing tonight. But even our next two games, they're not quite gimmies. You know, we are playing the Spurs who have, you know, this year pretty handedly beat us. We're playing another team fighting for the playoffs in Charlotte. Granted, they're a little banged up. And then we're playing Boston. Boston got a lot easier recently after the Jalen Brown injury. But I still, you know, think that they're going to be playing tough and and they're a well-coached team. Then you look at Atlanta's upcoming schedule and their biggest opponent was, what, the Wizards yesterday and today or in the next game? And then they're playing like the Rockets and the Wolves. You know, I it's hard for me to think that we're going to stay in front of them. And then I'm also worried about the Heat. You know, the Heat has been coming on pretty strong and that's the one team in the playoffs I don't want to see. So I think we wind up with the fifth seed, and I'm hoping that the fourth seed is Atlanta. The Heat just beat the Celtics, by the way, for the second straight game. So they're, again, a game behind us. I believe we're half a game behind us. Which, again, yeah, that's super troubling. It's crazy as well as we've played and as many games as we've won, we're still we're still jockeying for that position. But it just shows you how crowded the East has been and, and how far back we, we had to come from to, to jump up to that fourth spot. But, I, I mean, it's also 
pretty impressive that we're going to stay at most. I, I don't even think we're, it's possible that we end up in the playing game, which is, which is awesome. But yeah, I mean, looking at the schedule, like, you know, we do catch a break with uh, LeBron, which if we can win and then I, I think what it's going to take to stay in the four seed is out of these four games, we have to go three and one, which is, again, is definitely not going to be easy, but we do have the tie break over Atlanta. I don't know if we have it over the heat. I know they beat us the last game out, so I don't know. I, I don't think we have it over the heat. I'll double check right now. Yeah, I, I, I know we have it uh, over Atlanta, which, yeah, as Rahul said, if, if we end up with them in the first round, whether we're four or five, I have a pretty, I have a pretty good feeling about us being able to, to win that, that series. The Heat are definitely the one team uh, out of that that we want to avoid them getting into into a spot where we're four or they're five, any situation like that. Because one, they've been through a playoff run together. They're bringing back essentially the same team that went to the finals last year, so they they got the battle tested guys. And and then you know Jimmy Butler is just when when the money's on the line, you know he he's he's just unbelievable. So they're the team I want to avoid. But yeah, I mean with Atlanta, I I have. The ultimate confidence that we're going to the second round, which, you know, at this point, I, I'm going to say is probably uh, pushing pushing a team to the to six or seven games in the second round is probably our ceiling. But I remember saying two months ago that our ceiling was the play-in game. So remains to be seen. Who knows? We'll be talking in a month that we're, <laughs> that we're in the NBA finals and we never saw it coming. <laughs> well... I don't know what I'd even do with myself if that was the case. I mean, I would I would probably die from just pure joy if we actually made the NBA Finals in this season of all seasons. I feel like the actual worst case scenario is not even facing Miami. It's falling to six somehow and facing Milwaukee. That's a team that I don't think we have any chance of beating in the first round. They have too much experience together and Giannis is just too much of a beast. I, I would not like that matchup at all. Let's just focus though on on the what you said, Drew, about the Heat and the Hawks. I personally believe that we would be the underdogs in both series. It doesn't really matter what the betting line is. I think people put a lot of money on the Knicks because there's a lot of Knicks fans been waiting for this. The Heat are obviously going to be challenging. They just went in the finals last year. Jimmy Butler is playing out of his mind and frankly carrying this team. And if you actually look at their record with him, they are right at the top of the East. It's just a matter of the many COVID absences they had and the various injuries have really derailed them. But they have tons of veteran experience. They have an excellent coach in Spolstra and they have the potential to win in a lot of different ways. I also think they have, you know, Bam is a, a guy who can they could throw on someone like Randall and, and and he can also control the paint defensively. He's one of the most versatile defensive players in the NBA, frankly, only behind Anthony Davis in terms of his overall versatility at that center position, his ability to switch out or play any kind of scheme that makes them challenging to score against. And I think ultimately offense is what worries me about the Knicks against a team like that because of, of their defense, but also against the Hawks, because I think the Hawks present the challenge of, yeah, they're not a particularly impressive defensive team, but they're an amazingly efficient offensive team with weapons all over the place. And I just wonder if the Knicks can keep up with them for seven games. Obviously, I prefer the Hawks to the Heat, but it's going to be put a lot of pressure on Randall to continue to basically carry this team. And so, I don't know, I'm not feeling overly confident about that series either. Honestly, like you said earlier, I think we'd be betting uh, underdogs on both of those series is obviously larger underdogs against the Heat. And I agree with everything you said about the Heat. I think that they are a true sleeper in the East. I think they're just as bit, as good as the 76ers are and the Bucks are. I don't know if anybody is good as the Nets are when they're clicking or when they're healthy. But the Heat is definitely the first round matchup we want to avoid. We're a terrible matchup with them. You know, honestly, their ball movement is so fast and so smart that even our defensive intensity and scheming and our effort might just not be enough and then on our offensive end we're going to have a challenge scoring on them you know between Adebayo on Randall and you know all the other guys kind of scheming out and rotating to perfection based on Spoh's scheme I think we're going to have a challenge that way I think Atlanta we have a good shot against I don't think we would beat them to be quite honest with you guys we've had a couple of tight and actually overtime games against them earlier this year anyways i guess a lot of it's going to depend on how they officiate the tray stuff you know him jumping into people lunging into people how does that whistle either do things get tighter in the playoffs do people are they allowed to be a little more physical a little bit more liberalized in terms of their contact you know that's gonna that's gonna be a big adjustment for trey i think and in his first playoff experience and so 
while I think the matchup-wise it'd be a lot closer with Atlanta, I think ultimately they would prevail also. And I hate selling the Knicks short because I did this already and it came back to bite me in the ass. But Dude, who are you? Who are you, dude? Is what it is. Um, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to say, though, I do think that that Bucks series might wind up being the series we're going to wind up getting. And I'm all for it, man. I I know we're probably not going to beat them. That's okay. But this team, if this is going to be our core and this is going to be the way we want to build into the future, we need to start playing these guys. We need to start taking licks and seeing what it takes to beat Giannis in the postseason. We, you know, if we're not going to go all the way, we might as well start with the gauntlet. We might as well start gaining that experience. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I got to say, I didn't think about it quite like that. I still hold out hope that we can just get out of the first round and get to that second round and have like a classic New York versus Philly, aka I don't talk to my brother for an <laughs> entire playoff series since he's a huge Sixers fan. That would be a cool series. I would love to see it. But you're probably right. I mean, if we think for sure that they're going to get knocked out, which I'm not willing to go that far, but facing the Bucks would be an experience and you could have a better understanding of which players in the roster really make sense for playoff basketball, which as we all know, is just fundamentally different from regular season in a normal situation much less in this weird covid season that we've been having where there's absences left and right and very little team coordination with this extreme compressed schedule that we had i almost i'm i'm really intrigued by the bucks series mainly for the fact that two years in a row you know the bucks had the best record in in the east number one seed knocked out both times and and the knock is they're a great regular season team but when the playoffs start and it gets more physical. Defenses pack the paint a little more against Giannis and and dare them to beat them from the outside. I almost feel like the way the Knicks play, you know, I don't I don't anticipate us winning, but I, I do think it'll be a tough series for for the Bucks and one that maybe they would feel the pressure on more than us. Uh, even I mean, I honestly don't think we could feel pressure at all at this point. But yeah, I would almost feel like they, all the pressure's on them. So it, it it could definitely be a long fun series to watch. Yeah, I think no matter almost who they face, they're going to get the Knicks, they're going to get the Hawks, or they're going to get the worst case scenario for them is getting the Heat, who knocked them out just last year. But in any of those situations, all the pressure will be on Milwaukee. And you know what? Why don't we talk about them? Because I wanted to zoom out a little bit and talk you know, briefly about the Eastern Conference playoff picture in general. So the top three seeds are pretty much locked right now, right? unless the Nets really collapsed on the stretch, which I don't see happening. But Philly is pretty much going to be the one seed. The Nets will be the two seed and the Bucks will be the three seed, which potentially sets up an epic clash between the Nets and the Bucks in round two. But before we get to that, we could see a Heat versus Bucks round one matchup. That's how this, the seedings are right now. If the Heat face the Bucks again this year, do you guys think that the Bucks have improved enough in different ways to actually beat the Heat? Oh, shit, man. I can't believe that that would be a first round matchup. I feel so bad for Milwaukee. I don't think they'll beat it, though. Nah, really? Let me be serious. I think that that series was a lot closer than the final tally was, the five-game win by the Heat. I think a lot of the times the Bucks really just were in their own heads, kind of playing against themselves and the Heat. And I think Drew Holiday is a consistent creator, scorer, and overall right temperament guy for a team like the Bucks just to show them how to kind of get over the hump and win a series. You know, he hasn't had a ton of playoff success, I'll give you that. But they had a pretty big playoff win uh, that no one expected, really, with the Pelicans beating the Blazers a couple years back, and he was a big part of that. And he really was all over Dame on that series. So I think if if you put Drew Holiday, make life difficult for, you know, Jimmy Butler, I think, giving him the confidence and the creation from the guard spot so that Giannis doesn't have to do it all. I think they have enough in there to beat the Heat. They're overall more talented. I think if they're unlucky to get that draw, it might go seven, but I think the Heat would would lose eventually to the Bucs. I totally agree with you, Rahul. I think a lot of what plagued the Bucs last season was, frankly, inexplicable coaching by Coach Bud. This guy decided that they were going to run their same drop coverage they ran all season just because that's the only thing they ran. So they're like, all right, we're going to continue to do this, which left 
guys like Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson wide open from three over and over again. He decided to play all his best players super short minutes because that's what he did the whole regular season. And he decided that he's never going to switch and he's never going to put Giannis on Jimmy Butler at any point. Well, this season, we've seen changes to all those things. At times, he's played Giannis a lot more. He's used much more switching schemes than he did previously. And I think that although their overall record isn't as good, I actually think this is a better Bucks overall team in large part, not just because of the schematic change, but because they have Drew Holiday. And he's a massive upgrade over Eric Bledsoe, especially for playoff basketball. And I think he is one of the true elite defenders in the NBA who's capable of you know, even guarding up to forwards and, and bothering them. So they become much more switchable. They become much more scheme versatile. And I think actually, not only do I think they'll beat the Heat if they face them again, although it'll be probably nervous times for Milwaukee fans going up to that series, but I think they'll give the Nets as good of a run for their money as anyone in the East. So what do you guys think about a potential round two Nets versus Bucks matchup? Are the Nets healthy or not? Let's assume that they're healthy. Let's say that Harden's back. If Harden's back, I mean, I honestly don't see anyone that can stop the Nets in the East. I mean, it's Harden actually has, is probably the most crucial player to that that entire team. I, I think from what what I was reading up on earlier, the the Nets with just Kyrie and Durant are like nine and eight, versus with Harden, you know, they have a like a six or seven hundred winning percentage, which is you know, you think about Kyrie and and Durant, you would think you're going to run the table with just those two. But Harden's really the key to the whole team. And the fact that he's also been the one to probably give up the most uh, in terms of shots, but he's a willing passer. He became almost a triple-double machine when, when he first came over. I don't think the Bucks have, have a real real great shot at stopping them. If all three are on the floor and, and healthy, it's, it's just too much firepower. The one area that I do feel the Nets w- will struggle is, is their defense because I, I think they don't have a good team defense, but I don't know if the Bucks can exploit the interior as well as they would hope. So I'm going to make a counter argument, Drew, and this is purely devil's advocate to some extent, because I also agree with you that fully healthy, the Nets team is just too talented, not just for anyone in the East, but probably anyone in the whole league. I think they probably should be the favorites if they're actually healthy. That being said, I do think that the Bucks have certain things they can do that can expose the Nets a little bit and and give them a better series, at least than anyone else in the East. The first thing is, the way that that teams have beaten Giannis in the past is by really establishing a wall against him, right? The Raptors is really well with the likes of, you know, Gasol and then Siakam and Kawhi kind of hounding him and, you know, Serge Ibaka there as well. And then last year, the Heat had the personnel to do this as well with Guys like Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler hounding at the point of attack and a bunch of other good defenders complimenting those players. The Nets don't have that personnel. And you saw that even recently in the two matchups. Giannis just absolutely obliterated them in the paint. So that's the first thing. I think the best way to stop them is to stop Giannis from at least just going to the rim at will. They can't do that. They also have the kind of like if you had to pick three players to theoretically guard the big three you can't do much bit better than the combination of holiday and then either middleton or divincenzo on one of those two guys and then you could put Giannis off the ball or put middleton on durant that that combination of players is very switchable it's versatile defensively can make them work and they at least have three guys on paper who can score 20 points per game now i don't think any of these three guys are as prolific as even one of the nets big three offensively but there's at least a way in which I could see it happening like that. And the final thing is chemistry. The Nets don't have that much chemistry and the Bucks do. So they've at least had several years playing together, the core of that team, aside from Drew Holiday. So maybe that'll capture in, in a high leverage playoff situation and these guys will get over the hump. At least that's my hope. I definitely see where you're coming from and and those last two games. I, I, I almost feel like they didn't defend him the same way they would defend him in the playoffs. They let him catch it clean in the post. But on the other side, they, they also left him wide open and he was confidently taking those shots. I think he hit uh, four four or five threes in the first game at least, which is yep. unheard yep. of for, for Giannis. So I, I, I think they, they were a little thrown off too because they tried to play him by packing the paint and that sort of didn't work. So then they reverted to letting him catch it in the post one-on-one with DeAndre Jordan, which, yeah, if DeAndre Jordan's your one-on-one defender with him, Giannis is going to eat him alive. Uh, I think DeAndre is a te- is probably one of the worst big men in the league right now, and, and 
that's pretty sad since he he was a really good defender in his in his day. But yeah, I mean, you bring up some good points. If if yeah, I, I think what it's going to come down to is if they are able to pack the paint like teams have done in the past and Giannis can't hit an outside shot at all to open up uh, allowing him to post up with a free catch and and face then I I, I honestly think that they have no shot but if he does what he did in these last couple of games shoots confidently you know makes 40 to 50 percent of his outside shots which for him I think is a big ask you know 15 feet or more out I mean yeah he's gonna have opportunities to do what he does which is work in the post get to the basket and, and just overpower people to me, it's less about whether or not his three-pointer is falling than whether he can get to that rim consistently. Because I think he's at his best when he's used not as the guy with the ball in his hands, but as that screen setter for Drew or for Middleton. That's when, as a role man, he's purely devastating. Really, when he's used at the five, frankly. In those positions, if he can do that consistently. So then, even if they want to collapse the paint on him, you know that means that someone's wide open for three, and you don't have. Hopefully, you don't have someone shooting as bad as Eric Bledsoe has these last few years. Whether it's Drew or DiVincenzo or many other shooters they have on that team, if enough of them make open threes to punish that strategy, they can hopefully keep pace and then try to win. You know, down the stretch. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but at least there's like a path to do it. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's going to be a real series, and I think there's ways to make the Bucks scheme a little bit more efficient. And and you hit the big one where you use. Giannis is the role man, so he's the one setting the screen. He's not the primary ball handler, or you and or him and Drew maybe run a two man game. But using him as a screener and a roller really puts a lot of pressure on the defense. And actually, I'd rather have Brooke Lopez spotting out for three and, instead of Giannis standing outside with the ball in his hand. So, you know, there's a way that you can make the Bucks offense even more efficient than it is now. And I'm hoping that Bud can kind of see that and make the necessary adjustments this year. That being said, again, you know, outside of a really good series, I'm not sure where it ends for the Bucks. I think the Nets ultimately will will eventually prevail and we'll be seeing them in the finals. So you guys are then both predicting that they'll beat the Bucks and then the Nets will go on to the NBA finals? Yeah, I think Embiid and Simmons is a fun team. I think ultimately, though, they don't have the firepower to really stand with Brooklyn. It, it's just going to be a game of... Threes versus twos, you know, like honestly. Yeah. Um Embiid yeah. can slow it down. He can really get the big men into trouble and things like that. But ultimately, if the Nets jump out to a big lead, there's absolutely no way that I can see Philly really mounting a big comeback like that against the Nets. It's just the offensive firepower is just way too much. And and it's different than the Bucks. You know, the Bucks, they have offensive firepower. They can put up a hundred exactly. points. Exactly. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. I I think that it's really a matchup thing. There's a theoretical path to me that the Bucks could beat the Nets, right? They, they have an offense that's similarly high-powered, and they have certain match advantage they can take advantage of. But the Sixers can totally beat the Bucks, who they can build a wall against, kind of like the Heat and the Raptors did in, in past years with their big personnel, and they can bother them defensively. But I don't think they can beat the Nets, who are just going to flat-out outscore them. And I, I just don't think the Sixers offense is going to be dynamic enough with so many non-shooters out there on the floor whether it's Matisse Seibel or whether it's Ben Simmons you know taking space away from Joel Embiid I just don't think they have the formula to beat them so the Sixers path to win this whole thing is that the Bucks somehow knock out the Nets which I don't think is impossible but I wouldn't bank on it either yeah I think the Sixers are a better matchup for the Heat and the Bucks than the Nets I think it's a little bit of a of water fire lightning situation so yeah like a rock paper scissor yeah <laughs> totally is that a, oh you get a, a bulbasaur charmander squirtle the pokemon <laughs> reference glad you caught yeah <laughs> so last thing guys i'm gonna go through the odds for who wins the east for the various teams and you tell me i know raul you're a gambling man as i have partaken myself in the past and you guys tell me what bet you would recommend listeners out there to bet on to win the east is not to win the finals just to win the east all right okay and full disclosure i already have a bucks future (laughs) okay okay so you're already on this i saw some value in it earlier in the year i had of it at over plus 500 right now the current odds are at plus 325 i'm sorry were you gonna go through them do you want to go through them first yeah, let, let me run through them. But yeah, you're right. So you look like you got better odds than the Bucks have. So the Nets have the best odds at plus 100. And by the way, for those of you who don't know what plus anything means, what it means is this is the amount you would get back if you bet $100. So when I say the Nets are plus $100, that means you'd bet $100 to get $100. 
The Sixers have the next best odds of plus 300. In other words, if you bet $100 and you won the bet, you'd get $300 back. The Bucks are at plus 325. The Heat at plus 1400. The Celtics at plus 2500. I don't know who the hell is betting on them with Jalen Brown out for the season. The Hawks are at plus 2800. And the Knicks, I just got to throw out there because, hey, you know, as Drew said, who knows how this season, the Cinderella situation, it's plus 3,500. So if you bet $100, you're getting back $3,500. So based upon that, where do you recommend people put their money? All right, so let me get back into it. So I actually, for the same reasons we outlined in terms of their matchup with the Nets and just overall plus money value, think that the Bucks are kind of a, a nice value play here realistically what you're hoping is that they avoid the heat in the first round and then they just get toe-to-toe with the nets you're hoping that plus 500 essentially is better odds than they would get when they play the nets which i believe it would be and then i think if they get past the nets that they're the clear favorites in the east so that's just me playing the numbers thinking that they have a better chance than plus 500 or even plus 325 to beat the nets so i i would take that even still with with the plus money i'm not a big sports better poker is my game so you know i i know the odds there but when i look at this <laughs> i mean the thing that stands out to me after all we talked about what was the team we didn't want to see in the first round what was the team we would think it would give matchup problems yeah. on the defensive end what team is well coached and has been there before i mean plus 1400 for the heat that i mean just looking at that i would put and it's just to win the east which again is not an easy deal with the nets out there with the three-headed monster but if any you know underdog slash sleeper team is out there with some odds to win you know 1400 dollars, i think it's the heat i i I just see them as like the easy choice here. I, I hear you, but you got to think that if they were to go through this, right? So just think about it from an overall endurance standpoint. They went to the bubble. They got deep into the bubble playoffs to the finals, came back short. Now are they going to run through three seven-game series through the Bucks, the Nets, and then the 76ers to get to the finals? I think that's a lot to ask. I think those are going to be absolute dogfights series in series out especially the way the heat play and i don't think they're gonna have the legs for it to to kind of go through three different series i I totally agree raul but there's also another situation which you aren't quite accounting for which is that they could get up to the fifth seed and they can even go up to the fourth seed if things break completely right for them and we talked about that before so in that situation they have to beat either the hawks or the knicks which they'd be i think pretty decently favored over either team then they had to beat a sixers team that has far less proven playoff performers. I mean, Danny Green's been there, Dwight Howard's been there, but Simmons and Embiid have not proven to be reliable playoff players. And now they have to beat whoever comes out of that 2-3 fight. But listen, there's a situation where the Nets might not be fully healthy. We don't really know what James Harden looks like. He hasn't played a game yet in, in a while. And we don't know if those three guys can last through a full postseason. They seem to be able to barely last two weeks on the court together before something gets tweaked here or there. So... It's not like we're talking about a team that has full health either in the Nets. So there are situations where the Heat can make it. So that's why I like, as a value bet, the Heat as well at plus 1,400. Even though, if you ask me gun to my head who's going to win the East, I'd say it's going to be the Nets. That's fair. That's a good point. So guys, I want to thank you both, Drew and Rahul, for coming on another episode here. And we'll definitely get you guys back on to talk about the Knicks playoff run at some point. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Let's go Knicks. Go New York. Go New York. Go. Yes, I was waiting for it. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, man, this is always a blast. Um, I'm happy to hear that there's a ton of Knicks fans that want to hear some Knicks content. So we'll be back. You know, we'll definitely be back for the playoffs. And I'm sure the next time we jump on, we'll all be talking about the three of our experiences together in the garden. So can't wait to talk about that. For sure. All right, guys, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe on whatever platform you listen to. And if you have any questions or you want to talk to us about anything or you don't agree with our Knicks takes, just send us an email at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com. Until next time, we'll catch you later.